This was your first time watching this? What the fuck? <laughs> I just want to cry. <laughs> Can I just cry for an hour? Is that okay? That'll yeah, just be the episode. Okay. It's <laughs> just me and like... Eli talking, and then just you just sobbing in the background <laughs> at a low volume. Uh, I'm Wilson Lai. <laughs> oh, right. I'm doing the intro. <laughs> I was like, why are you just saying your name? I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, we know, bro. <laughs> And I'm Benjamin Yap. <laughs> I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. Wasn't a mess. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. There's, let this be fair warning if you've not seen this movie yet that it's a doozy. It's a doozy. There's a lot of yeah, a lot of things to be to look out it's, for. It's just a lot. Yeah. So yeah, on Deep Cut, the podcast <laughs> you're listening to right now, we compare Darkness' most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. We're on the second part of our look at the work of Lynn Ramsey. Last week we talked about You Were Never Really Here, which we dubbed the popular choice, even though any of her movies could be popular or deep cuts. And this week we're talking about We Need to Talk About Kevin from 2011. That's a fucked up movie, man. (laughs) That's a fucked up movie. (laughs) We're saying right off the bat that it's pretty dour. It deals with very serious real life topics. And I guess just as a general stepping into this conversation, how did you guys find the movie? What was the viewing experience for you? I think Wilson should start. I, <laughs> I am honestly at a loss for words. I'm the only one out of the three of us who has not seen this movie before. I guess I was starting a good practice this season two by having my laptop out and starting to write notes while I watched the movie on my monitor. I got like four notes in and then I just stopped. I just stopped. <laughs> I just like didn't want to type anymore. And as we talked about last week with You Were Never Really Here, Ramsey is so good at like visceral filmmaking like getting you in on the core of how a character is feeling and externalizing their internal thoughts and yeah when we are placed with the same techniques and when we are placed in the shoes of Tilda Swinton's character who is sort of just going back through her memories of her child Kevin after He has been arrested for basically, like, shooting people with arrows at his school and probably killing a lot of kids. It is, honestly, it was, like, so horrifying. Uh, I, it's just really tough material. Yeah. I don't really have any, like, conclusive statements. I, uh, I think the fact that I am so affected by it meant that Ramsey did a good job. But... It's like, just, yeah, beware when you watch this movie. I just didn't really know what I was getting into, I think. Um, or I just didn't, didn't know how bad it was going to be. Because I didn't really know what the movie was about. Like, I just know it was about a troubled kid, but I just didn't know how troubled he was. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing with movies that are devastating, right? 
where do we find value in them? Is it mm -hmm. in their technique? Is it something to be praised when they make us feel upset? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think this is one of those movies that lands in a very tough spot. Mm. Definitely. How was your experience, Ben? I think immediately within the first 10 or 20 minutes, I was reminded of how this movie made me feel the first time. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily specific images, although some I think still stuck in my mind from the first time I saw it, which was in 2017, I think. And immediately realized that this isn't really a film that you really need to rewatch because <laughs> it's a film that's actually harder to watch again because the big thing that she does is she leaves this extremely violent thing that happens to the end yeah. because of all the parallel editing that she's employing. And when you watch it again, you have already seen that scene. So you're kind of watching the film out of step with the way that it's edited. Mm. So you already kind of know everything about the film. Mm. And now you're just kind of going through it again in the way that it's cut. And because it's sort of cut in almost like associative way between many, many different timelines, the end product is something that kind of becomes a soup. It just kind of gets mixed together. So by rewatching it, you're just re-entering the soup. Not a very yummy soup. Not yeah. a tasty soup. <laughs> and immediately I was feeling this intense psychological anxiety throughout watching the entire film, throughout the entire runtime. It's really an anxiety that doesn't let up. Like I'm not I don't remember a film that has that much intensity. There's almost no reprieve in this. She doesn't let you breathe. There's no At all. <laughs> there's no like, hey, let's take a little breather. Here. Like I felt stuck in my, my chair the whole time in a very weird way when I was watching this. Yeah, thanks, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> Worth noting that my Letterboxd review for this rewatch was Dear at BF and at Wilson. Sorry, lol. Love, Eli. <laughs> it's a rough... Like, you wouldn't imagine that, like, having already seen it, that it would hold that much power, but it really does. It's so intense. And I think the mix of images and sound really create a very definitive mental space for the viewer as well as for the character. But it's really an emotional roller coaster in like every sense of the word. Like it's a visceral experience. Like you talk about immersion in terms of action sequences. This is like emotional immersion mm -hmm. <laughs> that you just cannot get out of. Yeah, I both agree and I don't on this rewatch where I think my impression of it has diminished a little bit in that I find the nature versus nurture questions a little bit pop psychology-ish. Mm. But I feel a renewed admiration for the structure of we need to talk about Kevin and the way that it's edited. And I think I feel that because of something that you said in our episode on You Were Never Really Here, Ben. You were talking about how the whole movie is inflected through Joe's perspective. And there is nothing that's really objectively told yeah. because it is so inflected with Joe's view. I think you can argue something similar here, where everything that happens is slanted through Eva's memory and the unavoidable onslaught of her memory. Wilson said that she's going through her memories, but in a way, I think it's more passive than that. They're going through her and she mm. can't stop the onslaught mm, up yeah. until this climax when she remembers the night of Kevin's attack itself. I really admire that and I think that's why it retains so much power on rewatch. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that can excuse this sort of, what I see is a little bit 
pat psychology of nature versus nurture. What do you mean by that, Eli? When someone does something heinous, we often ask the silly or reductive question of, was this person born evil, or did the conditions of their life encourage them to commit evil acts? Mm -hmm. And there's a strange fixation on the men who commit mass violence in America. Mm. And this movie, I think, lures you in with that question of, was Kevin evil or was Eva a neglectful mother? And I'm less interested in that aspect of the movie than the way that it conveys Eva's memory after a traumatic incident that tears away everything she knows about her life. Mm. I do think that the reason the memories are going through her as you coined it is probably also like a realization from her that she could have done something like there could have been intervention at multiple points i hmm, i don't know i kind of disagree i also don't think ramsey is trying to strongly engage with that nature versus nurture kind of conversation with this film because i feel like she has used the material because it's based in a book right to create something that is extremely visceral but doesn't necessarily extract meaning from what is happening Mm. and i think that's something that people use to knock on the film and i could kind of give them the point maybe even though i see the power and the success of the construction of the film and all its other technical aspects Mm -hmm. but it's because that is kind of her goal at least how i'm looking at this film it is essentially putting you in the shoes of Ava and feeling everything she feels within an extremely singular kind of situation that is not normal for anyone. I mentioned for You Were Never Really Here that that felt like something where I was watching Joe. This is definitely the opposite. This definitely feels like I am feeling everything that Ava is feeling, right? And I, I think that is kind of the goal that she had with this, she wasn't really trying to come up with an answer about nature versus nurture. She flirts with ideas of like maternal love and all that, but it's all just kind of there. But here, I feel like the film's main goal is raw emotion. And mm-hmm. I I can't really back that up in the most eloquent way, but that's just kind of how it feels. I agree, Ben. And I think that's a, that is a closer way of getting at what I was trying to say earlier where the draw or you could even say like the marketing of the movie is you're going to learn what made this violent teen the way that he is. Mm. But the real thing there is conveying the subjectivity and the function of memory. Right. The behavior of memory in Eva's mind after she has gone through a life upending trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's less about her kid, Kevin. Yeah, agreed. And how he became that, but it's really more about how she responds to the things that are happening to her. Yes. Whether it is Kevin himself or the fallout of what he has done. Mm-hmm. And it is a total kind of portrait of that and a kind of investigation into her trauma in all its aspects which is very expansive. It's a very expansive take on how this can affect somebody. Yeah. Yeah. As such, I think my viewing experience was something like the following. I didn't get as much enjoyment scene by scene with what was happening when it was investigating the question of, is it Eva's fault? Is it Kevin's fault? Is it Franklin's fault? The husband. 
because that's kind of the surface level thing that pulls you into the movie. But I found myself more fascinated by the superstructure. Mm-hmm. And anytime there's a cut in and out of a scene or the sound is doing something, those interstitial montages, in a way it's similar to something that Ben said in the last episode again, which was that Lynn Ramsey is a very strong formalist and part of the draw of her movies. And I think the heavier draw of this movie for me is the way that is the way that she works with her editor Joe mm-hmm. Beanie and her sound editor Paul Davies to construct Eva's psychology in a really viscerally felt way for the audience. I agree. <laughs> I'll just respond to that quickly before we go into context. I just watched the movie, so I'm still kind of reassessing everything about it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's gnawing at me is, what does it say to you something so traumatic and violent? From real life. Yes, that references real life events, right? And kind of use it as a formal exercise almost. Mm. When I think about it that way, there's something dark about that that feels a little, not really the right term, but it feels a little ham-fisted in the sense that it doesn't really have something to say, but kind of dips you right into it. Mm-hmm. We talked about You Were Never Really Here being a sort of anti-thriller that when you dig into it has a kind of treatise about the sensationalizing of violence. Yes. Here, there is less of that. Here, there is a bit of a sensationalizing of the trauma and the event and the way that affects the community. Mm. And I can't really shake that right now, now that I'm thinking about it. Mm. But I do wonder what you, both of you think. Off the bat, I'm inclined to agree. And I'd like to dig further into it and see if we can find anything. But to me, there's something about the reveal of what this movie is actually about and what it actually is more concerned with ultimately leaves a very important real-life instance of violence kind of at the sidewalk. Mm. There's something odd about that. Yeah, I don't... I, I don't know what to think, honestly. I feel <laughs> yeah. like it's it's still really fresh, like, emotionally for me. Mm-hmm. So I haven't really, like, taken the step back to stop and think about the, like, the real-life implications of. Mm. Yeah, I think definitely the first time I saw it, I was blown away by the way that she tells the story, the stylistic aspects of it and in rewatching it obviously those stylistic aspects lose their novelty a little bit and then there's a bit more room to step back from it mm-hmm. and think about what do we take from this yeah yes like where do we go from from here right yeah. yeah i think there's some context for us eli before we go too much deeper into this sure and then i have an observation that i think bolsters your argument then okay so we need to talk about kevin is based on Lionel Shriver's 2010 novel of the same name. Something that's interesting about it is that it is written in the format of letters, written by Eva. Ramsey wrote it with her husband at the time, Rory Stuart Rory Kinnear. Rory Kinnear? Is it Rory Kinnear? Greg Kinnear? Rory Stuart Kinnear. It shot in 30 days for less than $7 million, which is pretty impressive. Cheap movie. And the other little fun fact, as fun as a fact about this movie can be, is that Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley are godparents to Ramsey's daughter, who was born in 2015. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> I have one other piece of context that I can't confirm as having come from Ramsey herself, but Tom Townend, her cinematographer on You Were Never Really Here, in that little booklet that I bought last episode to research You Were Never Really oh, Here. yeah, your e-booklet. <laughs> I gotta bring more value out of it. <laughs> he says in his interview that 
Ramsey was disappointed by the reaction to we need to talk about Kevin because she had thought that it was her, quote, comic masterpiece, end quote. I don't know what to make of that or how seriously to take it because it's not Ramsey herself saying it. (laughs) Cannot understand that at all. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, if I ignore that. Like, I felt like I had to bring it up, but in a way, yeah, I think we have to ignore it. If I just forget about the fact that he said that Ramsey said this, and if somebody came up to me and told me that this was a comic masterpiece, I don't know how I would look at that person. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. I would probably look at that person as if they were Kevin themselves. Whoa. That's oh, we're just kidding. That's, that's rough. That's, what, <laughs> that's pretty bad. I mean, it's a, it's a dark way of looking at the film. Um, yeah. And also there's, like, really no moments for, like, I don't know comedy or what people classically defied as like comedic moments the sad moments are not like punchlines or anything there's barely like a black comic moment that i can think of i think you can argue for some moments as being funny but i didn't find them funny like in a way the comedy might come from you could argue those kind of nature versus nurture moments that are so over the top that they're a little bit ironic or humorous in a certain slant. Mm -hmm. Like when Eva walks in on Kevin masturbating and he doesn't stop and glares at her and she slams the door. There's something about that moment that, especially on a second watch, made me think like, oh, come on. Like, it's just kind of excessive or... This is one of the other things about what Ben is saying, where the movie is using the material of school shooters, and if it doesn't really want to dive too deeply into it, the material that it's putting towards explaining Kevin's psychology, only to make that about Eva's psychology, feels like a misdirection that maybe is inappropriate. Yeah. But isn't that something we'd have to take up with whoever wrote the book? (laughs) I mean, I don't really have an issue with that necessarily, that the psychology of Kevin is being, I don't know, subsumed into our exploration of the psychology of Eva. Hmm. My big question is just kind of a so what question, right? Hmm. When you do something about material that is sensational and real to people, right? There's a so what question. And I don't think... I can say that this film has an answer. Mm-hmm. And if it does have an answer, it's an answer you need to go and dig up yourself and figure out for yourself rather than the film necessarily having a stance on that matter. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain things that the movie argues for, like empathy for someone in Eva's shoes. We repeatedly see other people put the burden of responsibility on Eva. Yeah. People who throw red paint onto her house, who punch her in parking lots, who try to sexually exploit her for her pariah status. Maybe there is also an answer to this question about what we're supposed to do with Kevin as an audience member by holding us at such a distance from him. Maybe by changing its focus from what the movie is purportedly about even to the extent of revealing that the opening shot of the curtains is a POV shot of Eva later on in the movie. Mm. Ramsey wants us to consider that we're asking the wrong questions about people who commit violence publicly against strangers. I I do feel like the characterization, the way that she shows us 
Kevin is that it's in a way trying to show that he is almost just a force of evil kind of character. But we have to remember that we're seeing it through Eva's yes, point of view. definitely. But the way that we're seeing it through Eva's point of view is that he is someone who at every turn seems to be plotting against Eva in every way. Yeah. And we mistrust everything that seems normal or childlike when it happens. There are a few moments where it seems like Kevin might be becoming less of the brat that he is. But if you've seen the movie before, then at least for my second watch, those scenes don't give you any of that feeling at all because you know what's going to happen. Hmm. And you know that there is no turning back for Kevin's character. So hmm. it's it's an odd viewing experience because you're not really sure what to do with it after you're done. And I think that's kind of the lingering sense watching it, hmm. that it kind of opens all these doors and then doesn't close them and then you're not sure what to do now yeah and you're just like left with this weight yeah she just like gives you this weight to carry she's like here carry it for the rest of your day <laughs> and of course movies that deal with a contemporary problem for the public don't necessarily have to answer the questions that they're raising but if it's not that type of movie then we ask what is it reflecting mm. what is it trying to identify or label for us to then go forward and do something about and I'm not sure what the answer is here. In interviews, Ramsey talks about how it asks a dark question of what if a mother doesn't feel love for her son? And I don't know if that's the central question that I come away from this movie asking. I don't say this to suggest that Ramsey doesn't have a grasp on her material because she does. She's incredibly sharp and astute. But I'm struggling after this second watch still to take away what I'm taking away other than the feeling and the sense of Eva's subjectivity. I feel like the big question I asked myself when I watched this film that isn't about the big questions, but is really just about the characters, is does Eva love her son? Mm. And I'm asking that question at every point in the timeline, including Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when he's a baby, when he's a toddler, when he is teenager and i think that's a more interesting question in the process of watching the film because it's not even about nature or nurture it's just about do you love your son and that seems really simple and inconsequential in a sense but it is an interesting question to turn around your head because sometimes you have movies that are about unconditional parental love Mm mm-hmm And it's very difficult to apply to this because Eva is also characterized in such a way that it doesn't seem like Eva wants to have children at the point that she is pregnant with Kevin. And in the years after when he is still like a little baby and little toddler, it is interesting just watching it and wondering, does she love him despite the thing that he's doing right now, Mm. being a brat? And I think that's maybe the central question of the film. If I were to pick anyone, that it kind of throws you back and forth, wondering whether she does. And I'm inclined to feel like she does, and that she just doesn't know what to do as a mother. I agree 100%. And especially with that ending, and I guess what happens the latest in the in the timeline where, where she continues to, to visit him in yeah. the correctional faci- facility. Like, I don't know if... if you were a person that ruined my life in so many different ways. I would not go see you Yeah, locked up. But I think what she is wrestling with herself, and that's why these memories are coming back to her, on whether or not she should still care for her child, mm. despite everything that has happened. And how everything 
at the end culminates in the hug that she gives him mm-hmm. and lets him in. That feels like she has decided that yes, I am. I am still gonna love my son, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I would say is a deeply upsetting choice. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and is what continues to like weigh on me mm. after this movie has finished because I understand it. I understand it, but it is <laughs> it is a rough thing for someone in that situation to go through and come out the other end feeling that way. The opposite question is does Kevin love Eva, right? And you could almost say that the film is a processing whether this kid loves her or not. That's true. Are the acts of violence and the fucked up things that he does to her throughout the film, throughout his life, are they expressions of a fucked up kind of love? And I could see watching the film through that lens because there were definitely moments where I kind of processed it that way. Like like when Ava has her room, right, with all the maps and then he comes in and says he wants to make it special as well. It's almost like Kevin wants to entwine his life in the most graphic way, I guess into Ava's and it's almost like a child latching on to its mother and there's that kind of sense when you think about how he chooses not to be potty trained for such a long time I think that's an interesting way of looking at it I don't know whether that's the right way of looking at it maybe it is maybe it's kind of a dealer's choice kind of thing as a viewer yeah I don't know I'm thinking now about the difference between the sections that take place in the present versus the either sections of the past or as we're saying sections that are Eva's memory there's something heightened about those memory passages and there is something that takes on a literally melodramatic inflection where this family cannot make any of the right choices ever and anytime they do it's just a setup for you know when Kevin falls sick and Eva takes care of him and Kevin starts to come into the fold a little bit it's only a setup for that to be ripped away again and Kevin um, to take up archery. I was like, she should have pulled a fucking phantom thread, man. She could have kept him sick for ages. Oh my God. <laughs> or sharp <laughs> objects, whatever. Or when he put paint on the wall, give him an easel and paint, you know? Like, <laughs> there's, as Ben's saying about this second viewing, there is a tragic inevitability and there's something that is very devotedly heightened and I think sneakily mm-hmm. melodramatic mm-hmm. in that it is the extreme. It is the absolute. This family can do no right. And all of these scenes that we're watching fed into Kevin's decision to enact violence. And you have yeah. a father who literally does not see anything that's it's in front of insane. him. It's insane. Is not crazy. really ever in frame with his face for the most mm. part. Also... Let's. <laughs> I want to tell people that child psychologists are a thing. <laughs> yeah. And if you are in this situation, make use of, of professionals. I, I, this is also because I have recently started working at a school and I have been working very closely with the special needs department. And a lot of parents are unwilling to admit that their kids have a problem because by Mm. acknowledging that the kid has a problem in some way it means that uh, i don't know like they're a bad parent or there's something wrong Mm. but early identification and intervention in terms of like children's mental health can work wonders for a child's life (laughs) it's just wilson's psa for the episode (laughs) it always interests me when it seems like 
therapy doesn't exist in the world of a movie or show. Yeah. And it could solve most problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like as, as a random aside, I think about how Succession very deliberately has an episode where it says like, oh yeah, we've mastered therapy. Like we can talk our way <laughs> through therapy and get back out into the world. Yeah. And therapy doesn't seem to exist as an option in the world of we need to talk about Kevin. Mm. No. Or it just doesn't occur to Evan Franklin. Not at all. That's another thing that makes me think about the responsibility of a story like this to real life, that it presents the existence of a child like Kevin and doesn't offer solutions. Again, a movie does not have to solve the problems that it identifies if they're reflected in real life culture. Mm. But it is a choice to not have therapy exist as a possibility in this movie. But I thought, in my opinion, that that was a silent choice that was made by Eva. Like an expectation that the audience will say, what about child psychology? Or, or like, the fact that they never... I don't know. I, I just think that Eva and Franklin Danklin. don't want to accept that Kevin is has issues beyond being, like, a bratty kid. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that is more of, like, a thing to take away from this movie rather than hmm. a whole, like, nature versus nurture question. Right. For me, a lot of the memories struck me as oh, yeah, there's an issue not being addressed here. So maybe then the melodramatic extremes of Kevin's behavior and Eva and Franklin's failure to handle mm-hmm. it at every turn yes. function as a warning to parents who are watching to say, if you notice any of these signs, if you notice your son putting a guinea pig down a sink disposal, Jesus, do something about it. Well, at least that's how I <laughs> stepped away from I mean, because the film doesn't have that option within its world, then you don't know they're ignoring the option. Mm. And that's kind of like the the problem here. But you do have Franklin constantly saying that he's just being a normal boy. Yep. When Eva is like, the fuck? Do you not see what I'm seeing? Right? You know, there is that moment in the hospital after Kevin has injured Celie's eye with the drain cleaner when Eva tries to suggest that it is Kevin who has injured Celie. Mm-hmm. And she's right, of course. But Franklin refuses to hear it and says, you know what? I think you need to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So therapy does exist, but <laughs> it exists as a castigation against Eva's insinuation that Kevin has done something wrong. So I do like that there's responsibility placed on Franklin's shoulders mm. for actively ignoring what's going wrong in his family. Yeah. It's almost like a classic woman's picture of melodrama. I think so. Yeah, it really is. I think it is. That everything bad that could be happening happens to Ava to the extreme and nobody sees what she's going through and nobody is helping her. And as always, the children are horrible. (laughs) And then after it happens, they're still not helping her and no one seems to care about her. Yeah, it is like that classic woman's picture where like, it doesn't go well, and the woman dies in the end. But here, it's just something worse than hell, <laughs> as she herself has already kind of like taken note of when she meets those Mormons. And to be clear to our listeners, the we're referring to the woman's picture as a genre yeah. that had its height in the middle of the 20th century. It uses high melodrama and extracts emotion to convey the suffering of female characters. Mm. In a way, this label helps crack the movie for me. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. 
Let's move on to form. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> uh, We've talked about theme for forty minutes. Let's talk about yeah. form. Great. <laughs> yeah, the the really fascinating thing to me is uh, the edit and the use of sonic motifs that reappear to string emotion before we know what they mean or what they are linked to. For example, the sprinkler sound that mm. opens the movie and then is linked oh. to Eva's darkest moment, the discovery yeah. of the bodies of her husband and daughter. So in a way, I find the editing and the sound and Ramsey's direction and her use of close-up and really focused details to convey larger problems in Eva's family to be pretty unimpeachable. Yeah, it's top tier. It's just it's just great form all around. She's she's an incredible director and and she works so well with her team to yeah. convey the feelings that she wants to convey. I love how in this film because we're navigating so many different timelines, the way that Ramsey eases us into a a timeline change is usually with an audio shift before anything on screen you see like changes. So like an audio motif of her scrubbing is laid over the end of a of a memory section and then before the video cuts so then you you realize that she's thinking about that moment at the moment where she's where she's wiping the the red paint off of her front porch and i think that was a really effective strategy that ramsey employed basically throughout the whole movie that's why it flows so mm. so smoothly and it feels like you are following a train of thought throughout it's interesting that both of you kind of talk about this movie as a trip down eva's memories when i would argue that the experience of it is that you sort of stop thinking of events linearly mm. and because it is so fluid between the timelines that it's that it's quite difficult to find a temporal structure to this in the midst of watching it because it is just balancing between timelines here and there. It doesn't seem to have a structure except through maybe the, I don't know what the credit word for this is, but the mood of each mm. segment that you're watching, right? Mm. Yeah. And the next segment is maybe a escalation of the mood or a way to turn the mood on its head. Yeah. Or a way to juxtapose two different scenes from two different timelines. Yeah. There's a facility to how she does this in a way that helps you stop kind of thinking about when you are. Mm. And you are just feeling like you're steeped in the soup I'm talking about. Which is Eva's psyche mm. throughout multiple timelines. But the main two timelines, the, the main flashback timeline, which spans from when she is pregnant with Kevin till he commits this murderous act... Mm is displayed mostly in chronological order, as well as the other main timeline, which is Eva on her own after the mm, event. That's true. So they, they still, like, sort of operate in a chronological manner, and that's that's why I would say it was, it was a trip down memory lane. I think this kind of present-day timeline feels very jumbled up to me because it's hard to tell when things are. I think it's too chronological because she uses the holidays of Halloween and Christmas to mark time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is smart. But I still felt like I stopped thinking about time right. <laughs> just in the experience of it because I was just like, oh my God, this stuff is just happening. Yeah. And 
you could almost see it as the past using the future as a flash forward at some points. And it's not really clear what is the main timeline. There isn't really a main timeline in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way you could argue that <laughs> that it's all memory in the moment before Eva gives Kevin the hug. But that's kind of a hot take that I can't oh. necessarily bolster. That's possible too. Yeah. But we, we do see that interaction, right? There's a white two-shot with them sitting across from each other when she's visiting him, and it jump cuts mm-hmm. as they sit silently across from each other. I'm not sure if the costumes are the same, but I was wondering when that was, mm. because that could be anywhere. But the ending hug is, I think, like much later on, right before he's about to transition to adult prison or something. Yeah, yeah, because it's know. been two years yeah. when he was talking to her in that final scene. I think the modern timeline starts about a year after Kevin's attack because the court hearing has already happened. Eva has that memory of walking down the steps multiple times. Mm. And it carries through about a year until the final scene when Kevin's head is shaved Mm. and he's about to transfer to adult prison. I'm pretty sure it moves chronologically, as the past does, but there are frequent detours into these dreamy interstitials that mesh together jumps from different points in time, especially Eva's travels before she had a child Mm -hmm. and her courtship of Franklin. Mm -hmm. And I really like what you're saying, Wilson, about the way that scenes move in and out of each other, they're very associative cuts. There is always a motivation in the present for Eva to think about something in the past and a moment in the past that bridges us back into the present. There's a strong argument in this movie for Ramsey being a direct descendant of Soviet filmmakers of the Mm -hmm. silent era. I thought a lot about Strike from 1925, which is directed by Sergei Eisenstein. Yeah, boy, Sergei. And the moment when a strike is being put down violently, Eisenstein cuts to cattle being slaughtered. And that is sort of an objective association from the filmmaker. But Ramsey's working on the level of associative cuts in the mind of her character. Mm. Call back to our Nick Rogue, Rogue episode. Where <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about Rogue. Oh, Eli said exactly the same thing <laughs> yes in almost the exact same way oh, man. someone fly but, and find the clip play it back <laughs> but i mean that's just films right we all influence each other um but yes nick rogue yeah did you do you know who produced we need to talk about kevin oh oh right who 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 well soderbergh and luke rogue <laughs> nick rogue's son oh wow. that's insane I mean, I think Rogue is a little crazier in how he cuts. Yeah. <laughs> but there is similarities in the way they use details, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the previous episode about how she talked about Don't Look Now as one of the films that she watches as a child, right? Eight years old. <laughs> I feel like that must be one of those recurring memories she has that like is affecting her <laughs> filmmaking. But yeah. It's just that sex uh, scene playing over and over again in her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the sex scene in this one. Hmm. Similar vibe. Oh. So you see a little less, but, you know, similar vibe, right? Yep, absolutely. A little bit, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Same butt shot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it has to be a butt. Is it intercut with something? The one in this one, in the movie? Yeah. I, not I think really. not, but it might have a voiceover of a voicemail over it mm-hmm. or something. Right. The details that she uses here are really strong. Like, they don't necessarily mean anything, which I think is really powerful, actually, that images don't have to mean anything. They can just have a feeling. Like, you Mm. think about him crushing up the 
cereal or him mm-hmm. eating the lychee and yeah. there's just so many details yeah. within the different scenes when she first goes into the travel agency that she's trying to get a job at she creates a tone for this place that immediately is counterpointed with where she used to work where she seems to be in a higher position mm. right and there's no big example because every scene she's doing something small with some detail that gives you a sense and creates some kind of mood just through image alone. You could watch this film silently, I think. Yeah. And you would still get a mood from a lot of these images just based on pacing and how quickly sometimes very strange things are being done. Similarly, you could watch this movie without any images and I feel like you could feel the same way. <laughs> Possible, maybe. Because I think what the soundscape focuses on, there's still a more dialogue than there was in You Were Never Really Here, but there's still a, such a focus on sound effects. I keep on thinking about that quick scene where... They keep on returning back to it where she exits the courthouse and how when Ramsey cuts to a shot of Eva's feet, you hear so clearly the sound of her heels sort of stumbling down the steps of the courthouse. That's just one moment out of like literally every scene it it happens. And I think that's something that I have picked up on for future stuff like narrative work that I do or even documentary work that I do is that like when situating an audience member in a new place or a new time, a great way to get them feeling the sense of the space is to focus on a tiny detail and just mm. like spend time there. Like Ben was talking about that scene where she enters the travel agency for the first time and like a poster is hanging off of the wall. Mm. The core in one corner of it is hanging off and you just see the fan um, swinging around and it flapping in the wind. And the sound of it. Yeah. And it's just a a small moment or even a small like space in this large room, but it still makes you remember that space Mm. and remember that feeling that's associated with that image. She uses both visual and sonic close-ups to accomplish multiple types of goals whether it's conveying a feeling, conveying a memory, making the audience have an association with something elsewhere in the film, portraying a space, and often all things at once and more. Mm. I want to talk about color. Red. Red. Yeah, the red thing is so overwhelming that it stops being a motif, is what I kind of feel. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying that as a criticism, I'm just saying that's what she did. I mean, look at the first scene after the curtains where she is at some kind of festival with the tomato festival festival. okay i i I assumed it was tomatoes and it wasn't very sure (laughs) and how there's all that red and then that cuts right into her house being splattered with red paint the word i kind of come back to is that it's almost oppressive like you'll have a scene and you're like okay here's a red teapot or here's a red lampshade and you cannot escape the red and then I kind of forgot about this, but then she's really smart because then she uses yellow as the new color mm. of danger. Because usually red is the color of danger. Oh, red is also in Do Look Now. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but here, yellow becomes the color of danger because you kind of become desensitized to the color of red. Mm-hmm. And then yellow, that saturated yellow, the first time I notice it is when the toy arrow hits the glass 
window. Oh, yeah. That is the oh. first time I noticed it. And having already seen the film, I already knew what that meant, right? Mm. But it had that kind of impact where it's like, this strong primary color kind of makes itself known. Mm-hmm. Yellow to the red, you've already been assaulted with. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, the bicycle U-locks that he has are yellow. Are yellow, yeah. And they are the marker of the violence that, he, that he's going to inflict. It's funny because... Red is used so heavily in the film, but it's never visually linked to, like, blood or, mm-hmm. like, bloodshed. Yeah. But the red that is used, is it looks very much like blood, yeah. especially the paint that is thrown in yeah. the house. And I think that was a very interesting and maybe cheeky choice on Ramsey's part. She, I think, never shows blood, which is interesting. Yeah. Right? Not even with the guinea pig. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that links back to what we were saying about the oppressive inevitability of every scene in Kevin's childhood being wrong and Eva and Franklin responding in the wrong way. It's sort of like the movie is saying that this endpoint was always going to happen and red was always there. And then yellow starts to come in when it's more directly pointing towards Kevin's attack at his school. And then the other primary color, blue, starts to come in in the prison where Eva visits Kevin. And his room is also blue. Yeah. And she and she's when also when she's painting the house, she's painting the room blue. Mm. I was trying to figure out what blue's place in the film was. I wasn't really noticing it so much in the prison for some reason. It's a color that doesn't come up too frequently, I would say. Yeah. But I have to point out that this might be her big joke in the film. If I were to look at this as a comic masterpiece. <laughs> Near the end of the film, she starts folding clothes. And I assume this is after the murders have been committed. Yeah. She packs up clothes. And one of those shirts on the top of a stack of clothing is a white t-shirt with a hot dog with a red sausage and a blue bun shaking hands with a yellow can of mustard. Whoa. That has to be a Lynn Ramsey joke because I saw it and I was immediately cued into it because I w- had been thinking about color the whole time. And you show me this ridiculous image. Yeah. And she lingers on it for a very long time. She does. Yeah. That's a great observation. And I don't know what she's trying to say with that. I think it's a joke. So. Well, I was going to say about the appearance of blue that it suggests to me that Eva and maybe Kevin are able to turn a corner and start a new kind of relationship and future together, even after all this devastation. I agree. Because they're wearing blue in those prison scenes and Eva is making her house more blue and removing the red. And doesn't she set up his room for him exactly like it was in the previous house? Mm. Is that her room or his room that in her new house? No, that's his room. That's going to be his room? In her house. In her new is, house. Do you think that's what that is? Because it's a different window, right? I didn't oh, know man. what to make of it. She All throughout the movie, we see her working on her new house. And at the end, it's revealed that she's remade Kevin's room almost exactly as it was. Yeah. Oh. But the window's different. Because that's why, because she... Re- I didn't even notice. They repeat the shots of her, you know, when she was, like, she found the CD and she put the... There's a yeah. whole sequence before where she's searching his room. Yeah. And then she repeats the last few shots of that where her placing the box, the metal boxes on top of the shelf. Mm-hmm. And and then you cut out wide and you're like, oh, that's a different room. I the, didn't notice. The window's different. But and that's pretty crazy. But that's another like, yes, 
she still loves him like moment yeah for me yeah i'm like she's preparing his room for him from where he's when he gets out definitely yeah the merging of colors at the end of the movie suggests a new kind of peace and a path forward Maybe that's a little too optimistic because, mm. Wilson, you have already said that you read the ending pessimistically, that she chooses to give Kevin a hug. I'm not sure what to make of it. It's pessimistic for me personally, but I, I guess I'm happy for her if she feels that way. <laughs> She's also a fictional <laughs> character, but so it doesn't really matter. Another formal choice that I read into a little bit in the ending, at the top of the movie... That first shot, we push through the curtains, and it blooms white. It goes to overexposed before we can see what's out in the backyard and make meaning of that shot. The last shot of the movie is also a POV shot of Eva as she's walking through a doorway in the prison, and it blooms to white again. To me, that suggests this same kind of path forward, Mm -hmm. and also it has an association with Eva's darkest moment. So it's both. And Ramsey has us hold both of those things at the end of the movie for Eva. Yeah. I think Ezra Miller is so incredibly talented. We haven't even talked about performance. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. My gosh. <laughs> and, and also the, 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 the child actor who plays younger versions of Kevin are both so really demonic. Strong. Yeah. <laughs> and they look a lot like Ezra Miller. Yeah, they do. They all do the Kubrick stare. They do. And the fact that Ezra Miller and um, Tilda Swinton look so similar is such a like mm. a cherry on top because they use the shot specifically of them washing their face in the water to yeah sort of mess with their uh, how similar their faces look and it's great. Mm. Yeah, but Ezra Miller, the way that he holds his gaze whenever he looks at Eva um, it is just so fantastic. It creeps under your skin. And right now on Letterboxd, I have a fucked up cinema list. Go, go check it out. And Ezra Miller is the only actor to have appeared in two of those movies. What's his other movie? City Island? No, no. It's <laughs> After School by Antonio Campos, which is also very fucked up. And he plays a teen who is in the AV club and he's like filming a, a video for his school and I guess he's socially awkward and we don't know what mental health issues he's dealing with but he doesn't realize that filming two girls like choking to death and then he just goes up to them and sits with them as they just die on video that he records and the fallout from that yeah what what <laughs> Two people choking to... No, never mind. We'll we'll leave that for our Antonio Campos conversation. I hope we don't have an Antonio Campos conversation. (laughs) Sorry, dude. Sorry, man. (laughs) But but Tilda's also fucking fantastic. Tilda Swinton is bananas in this. She's, She's so good. She's always really good at going big and absurd with character performances but when she does a really grounded realistic performance she's so compelling this i am love the upcoming memoria looks great yeah i'm so excited for her in the pitch pong's movie i am so excited <laughs> for her to just like sit in silence because she just she carries it so well yeah yeah john c Riley, also great yeah i wanted to punch that man <laughs> the whole movie. I'm like, you don't get it hey maybe he's not the father of the child oh maybe i mean he, he looks he like love Swinton, so much, but it doesn't look like john c Riley at all 
<laughs> could be, could be. Like, where are the curls? <laughs> <laughs> you dangus. <laughs> Any parting thoughts on We Need to Talk About Kevin or Lynn Ramsey? I think for Kevin, I have to say that it's a testament to how effective it is that we spent such a long time talking about what to do with it because it is so effective and so fucked up. <laughs> As Wilson said, in a very visceral and you never feel like it's playing around mm. in its construction and you can't really say that it's pulling any punches. And despite the fact that we're finding it difficult to find out what she's trying to say or trying to say about the material that she's touching on, I would never say that this film is sensationalizing mm. the things it's talking about necessarily. I think it's very careful and very considered. Definitely. And that's a very, very difficult tightrope to balance. And that's a testament to Ramsey's ability as a filmmaker, for sure. I agree. I, I think it is a testament to the movie's strength that we struggle to give our feelings a home and a purpose, which I think is a concern that the movie itself has. How responsible are we for feelings? And it argues that we are more responsible for the actions that come from those feelings. And I think that that is a strength of the movie. Mm-hmm. How about you, Wilson? I personally really love movies that fuck me up. (laughs) Out of all the three features that I've seen, she is three for three with being able to successfully fuck me up. Yep. And that is like why I love movies. Movies that are able to take you from wherever you're watching it, bring you to another place emotionally, whether it's joy, whether it's sadness, whether it's grief. When a movie is able to so quickly and so cleanly and effectively bring you with it, even if it's a really dark place, I have a lot of appreciation for that. Just because I do think the strongest thing a film can do is connect with you emotionally. And Ramsey is one of the best at doing that. Yeah, definitely. Totally agreed. She does that and she does it, I would argue, with a really conscious, responsible, empathetic view of in particular violence and trauma thanks for going to those dark places with me guys (laughs) yes (laughs) thanks for having the most arguably the most fucked up director on on our podcast in the best way in the best (laughs) way next up gaspar noe kidding (laughs) (laughs) we're just going down this hole (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode of deep cut please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod, where we'll be announcing our next series of directors. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Sweets. Also, that Johnny Greenwood score. (laughs) I forgot that it was Johnny Greenwood. As I was watching, I was like, this would be better if Johnny Greenwood scored it. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I didn't know that he scored that. It sounds kind of, I'm using this word very carefully. It sounds kind of oriental. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I I know what you're saying, Wilson. I know what you're saying. Not to call Mr. Greenwood out, but... Play the music over this. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs)